the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. One of the one-off examples we have of a cash transfer program is the My People Fund. This was a program set up by the Dolly Parton Foundation following the Tennessee wildfires in 2016. This was an unconditional cash transfer program for people who'd lost their homes. So the impact of this fund was actually analyzed by a professor at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, Dr. Stacia Martin-West. And I had a chance to sit down with Dr. Martin-West and talk to her about what actually happened when people received the support. Here's Jim's conversation with Dr. Martin West. All right, Dr. Martin West, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So to begin with, can you tell us generally about the sort of research work that you do at the University of Tennessee? Sure, so broadly my research area is focused on anti-poverty initiatives as well as affordable housing. And so whatever community-based projects or national projects that come along that fit into those areas, I'm uh, typically drawn to. And so most recently that work has been focused on unconditional cash transfers, um, as well as some work around UBI. Now, I know one of your somewhat recent research studies was on the My People Fund, which was a program set up by the Dolly Parton Foundation following the Tennessee wildfires in 2016. Can you tell us what that program did? Sure. Um, so in 2016, there was a, a wildfire in Upper East Tennessee in the Smoky Mountains, and it happened to be the place where um, Dolly Parton grew up and where she has a lot of investment in the area. There were around 1,300 homes that were burned during that wildfire, and 14 um, individuals did lose their lives in that fire. And so in response to the, the drastic community need, uh, Dolly Parton decided to provide an unconditional cash transfer to anyone who lost their home in the fire. And what that transfer looked like was $1,000, no strings attached, for six months. And the only thing that you had to do to qualify was be able to demonstrate that you were the owner of a property um, that was lost in the fires or that you rented a property that was lost in the fire. So at the end of the six month period where she was um, doing the cash transfers of $1,000, there was a lump sum of $5,000 given to every household. So in total, people were getting, uh, is that $11,000? total over a six month period, yes. So based on what you just described, that certainly sounds a lot like many of the proposals out there for basic income for folks. So I know that you actually dug in on what happened and how, how people perceived that, what they did with that. Can you tell us what sort of things you found? Sure. So let me start by saying that you know we were unable to attribute any of the changes that we saw necessarily to the unconditional cash transfer simply because what we were doing was studying uh, a natural experiment so we weren't able to have a control group we weren't able to have a true baseline so what we used was a retrospective baseline design um, and we wanted to know do the folks six months after the fires look like they did uh, as they reported to the baseline. So did they have changes in financial health, in housing stability, in mental health measures, and in social supports? And so what we found, interestingly, um, but I think we find this in a lot of cash transfer work, is that people didn't change their work hours at all um, as they were receiving the basic income, or I'm sorry, the cash transfer. What we did find that was very very troubling is that 
folks experienced extreme uh, depressive episodes as reported by an instrument that we use. It's a short form to measure depression. And so around 50% of the sample six months after the fires were reporting depression. One positive note that we saw is that individuals were accessing counseling services either through a counseling center or through their medical provider more so than they were um, prior to the fires occurring. So we know that you know, depression and anxiety were increasing, but at the same time, they were able to access the services that they need. Another interesting finding that we have from the report is that folks um, were primarily 50-50 uh, homeowners and renters. After the fires, we see about 78% of people end up in rental housing situations, right? Those were typically much higher cost than what they were living in prior to the wildfires. But after the six months, what we see from the unconditional cash transfer is that the proportion of individuals who are renting their homes versus owning their homes goes back to a level that we saw prior to the fires. And so what we take from that is that the unconditional cash transfer at least smoothed some of the expenses and allowed individuals to get back into a housing situation that was more stable and reflective of where they were prior to the fires. Now, I'm curious what you noted about increased levels of depression and anxiety. Do you have any hypotheses on that? And is that something that seemed, or, and I guess if you've had a chance to look at it, is that something that is common following a disaster situation? Or does that seem like something that was more unique to this particular situation? Absolutely. So when we look at natural disasters and the human response to that, typically we do see, um, as a result of that traumatic experience, we do see higher levels of anxiety and depression. Um, and we certainly do see people accessing services uh, more frequently as a result of that. I think one of the really interesting things about the unconditional cash transfer in this situation is that I think part of the trauma that people experience after a disaster is negotiating the sort of tangled web of FEMA, the Red Cross, traditional social service agencies, and it can sometimes feel like there's no agency. If we look at people who experienced Hurricane Katrina, for example, they talk a lot about kind of being caught up in the system, not feeling like they um, had a lot of autonomy, and that they had to report back to FEMA or the Red Cross you know, I spent the money on this, or in some cases, they thought that the loan that they were receiving was actually a grant. So when I look at this from a mental health perspective, I think, okay, if we can maximize agency and autonomy by simply giving people cash and they can make their own decisions in a really traumatic time, perhaps we can mitigate some of that mental health um, sort of decline that we see in traumatic events. That's interesting and somewhat related to my next question, which was, did you get a chance to see how the cash support received through the My People Fund compared to other forms of aid that people were receiving? Sure. So we asked individuals what the most helpful thing that was that they received in the wake of the wildfires. And overwhelmingly, people indicated cash was the most helpful. And certainly relying on uh, the support of family and friends or other traditional uh, disaster response services were important. I believe it was around 67% just said cash was it. 
Well, that certainly seems like an important finding when, when thinking about how we respond to these sorts of things going forward. Sure. Um, now, I know, I know oftentimes when we discuss unconditional cash transfer programs, people have a somewhat instinctual negative reaction. It seems like they feel like any support people get should have some form of conditions or direction attached and that just unconditional cash feels irresponsible or just inherently wrong somehow. Is that something that you encountered around the, the disbursements through the My People Fund? You know, interestingly, I came at this uh, to this project uh, expecting to see a lot of that as well. And I think that that's the narrative that is really comfortable um, for for people to tell and for people to think around uh, cash transfers or basic income. What one of the things that struck me was actually presented to me from David Dotson, who is the president of the Dollywood Foundation, and he said this. He said. At the end of the day, any type of program or approach that's built on the idea that people are smart, they're good, they know what to do, and you trust them to do that, you ground something in the positive perspective of humanity, and then positive things happen. And so I think his saying that and his leadership, really, of the My People Fund demonstrated to the community that these are our neighbors and our friends uh, and we can trust them to know how to spend the money in a way that makes sense for their family. And I think that kind of mitigated some uh, negativity toward the project. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, zooming out from here, I'm curious, what implications do you feel like the results of your analysis on this have for the larger conversation around unconditional cash and universal basic income in the US. Sure. So I think, you know, we really can't look at this in terms of unconditional cash transfers and the way that this evaluation uh, looked at it. We can't look at applicability beyond any sort of natural disaster, right? Like this was a very small study. Um, it only gives us very preliminary results of how this might work in a natural disaster setting. And so I think there are certainly implications for future research here. And so if I hold UCTs separate from UBI, um, I think that there's much more evidence and activity around basic income, of course, right now in the United States. And so drawing from that, I think we can we can connect the two a bit and say, all right, we don't see drastic reductions in work hours. Um, we don't see huge declines um, in earned income, right? Those sorts of bridges can certainly be built. Um, but we have a much longer history of looking at UBI in the United States than, say, we do UBI. UCTs for disaster response. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Now, to shift gears a bit, outside of the work you've done around My People Fund, you are now doing research work on the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, the basic income pilot program that's being launched in Stockton early next year. I, I know it's early in the process, but can you say anything about what you'll be looking to learn from that? Yes, yeah, so the SEED program is incredibly exciting. I think one of the things that makes it really unique is that the research is being done in a way that we are pairing traditional randomized controlled trial with participatory action research and qualitative methods. So what we'll be able to explore with that is does basic income have the potential to sort of 
disrupt income volatility that we know has negative mental and physical health outcomes. So we'll be able to answer those questions with the RCT. And regardless of what we find with that, we will be able to understand how basic income worked in the lives of the recipients because we'll be interviewing them in both focus groups uh, as well as in in-depth interviews. So one of the really interesting things that we're doing with SEED is that we're doing a community-facing dashboard which is going to be a website that shows the quantitative data coming in in real time. So Stocktonians, the rest of the country will be able to look at what are the different groups that are receiving this basic income? In what ways are they spending it? Is their debt going down? Um, are they paying down credit card and medical bills and that sort of thing? Are we seeing changes in mental and physical health? So that'll be a great way for us to get real-time data about basic income while we have to wait a little bit longer to have more conclusive results at the end of the project. That was Jim Pugh and Dr. Stacia Martin-West on the Basic Income Podcast. I thought, you know, it's worth reiterating that like so many other cash transfer programs, we see there was no change in work hours. I think that's often the first thing that I've never heard of basic income or cash transfers, think that everyone's going to quit their jobs. And again, one more point for no change in work hours. And But it was also, um, you know, even though we saw that somewhat universal finding, um, it was just a, such a unique situation where we can draw certain conclusions that we can generalize from it, but also this is just a very specific situation, but I think an excellent use case for cash transfers. I think that's right. It is so rare to see a situation where you're providing people with unconditional cash and aren't getting that really gut pushback that people have around, whoa, what's going to happen when you give people money with no strings attached? And I think a situation like this, where people have just been really through a disaster, that's one of those rare instances where it, it puts people in a very different headspace. And the idea that, oh, yes, of course, like these are our, I, I think there's that connection. It's like, oh, I feel like a kinship. And yes, we should come together to provide the support to people and not worry about all these other hoops and restrictions that, that typically come to mind for any sort of assistance. Yeah, and one parallel you can draw is give directly the one time they've worked in the United States was at, at in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. They helped people in Texas who had had lost their homes or had experienced that disaster, and you know it's just telling that they chose that moment other than the general existence of poverty or or other scenarios they they could have picked. That this is a time when it's just it's no one's fault that the fire came through or there was a hurricane and people are just put in these dire situations very quickly. And so, of course, we're sympathetic to their needs. And no, we don't mind that they're getting a few thousand dollars. It'll be interesting to find out if if we can continue to do more work in the space, provide more unconditional cash to people who have gone through disasters, how far that can go. Is this something where, so a wildfire is, I mean, this is something instant disaster people lose their homes, okay, let's support them. What if it's something where you have slowly rising sea levels that are forcing people out of their homes? Do people feel the same way about that? What if it's something where you can point to larger structural causes that are actually harming people in some way? Is I'm wondering if this is, if we can take this mindset and build on it to, to expand the purview of, of what people see as acceptable for providing 
cash to people. Yeah, and I think you can kind of universalize that to the general basic income debate where when people feel like it's not someone's fault that they're in a tough economic situation, then I think they're generally very sympathetic to the idea of them getting cash. When it's more of just someone is poor and you don't know why, then often people blame the poor person for being poor and giving them cash feels like you're just rewarding them for you know whatever whatever trouble they got into that caused them to be poor in the first place. And so yeah, disaster is kind of all the way on one end of that spectrum, but maybe we can bring that more and more toward the general population. And maybe this is a reason to explore what would it take to frame poverty as a disaster that is hitting people and, and could that shift how, how people view it? And this makes you wonder, is this a different way to frame poverty? Could we actually get far more support for social assistance generally if we could shift people's views to see poverty as being a disaster that struck people and, and point to some external factors in a, in a more tangible way? Yeah, I think external factors is the key term there. And the more people see this as something that happens to people, poverty and financial insecurity, as opposed to something people are at fault for, I think the more successful we'll be there. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davison. If you like what you hear, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice. And please do tell your friends. We are always looking for new listeners. We'll talk to you next time.